Good morning. The Bible reading this morning is from 1 John, chapter 4, reading from verse 7 to 21. And this is found on page 1227 in the Church Bibles. Reading from verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us, he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. This is the word of the Lord. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters, more than 50 years ago, the BBC commissioned the Beatles to write a song for the first global telev live television link called Our World. The Beatles were asked to provide a song uh, with a simple message in basic English that could be understood by everyone. And so John Lennon and Paul McCartney came up with All You Need Is Love, yeah. All You Need Is Love soon became the most popular songs of all times. 
All you need is love. There are probably few people in Scotland today who would uh, not agree uh, uh, with that. However, what people in our society disagree over is the meaning of the word love. What kind of love is it that all of us need? I'm sure we would get some pretty interesting answers if we um, did a survey here on the streets of Kostorfen this afternoon. What kind of love is it that we all need? Of course, as good Christians, we all know the correct answer to that question, don't we? All we need is the love of God, am I right? But you see, even church people can get that one wrong. Some might not be sure about the meaning of the love of God and what it looks like in real life. Others might have a wrong understanding of God's love and its practical outworking in everyday life. That, dear friends, was the situation that the Apostle John was addressing in his first letter. The churches which were under John's care had become divided. There were church members who thought that they were superior to their fellow Christians. They claimed to have special knowledge, special spiritual insights. Some of them questioned whether Jesus was a real human being. Others questioned that Jesus was the one and only Messiah. And on top of that, they taught that salvation had nothing to do with Christian living and love for others. As a result, they withdrew from the main congregation and they formed their own little groups. These separatists claimed to love God but had nothing but contempt for their fellow Christians who didn't agree with their views. They claimed to love God but wouldn't even think about helping others in practical ways. Put another way, these believers didn't show love and commitment to the truth of the gospel, and they didn't show love and commitment to their fellow Christians. Well, let's not just stay back there at that time. What about the church today? What about the church here in Scotland in the 21st century? Where can we see such a love of, lack of love and commitment to Christian brothers in our church. Did you know that there are churches who claim to be in fellowship with other churches, but at the same time, they would never invite a minister from these other churches to come and preach? Why? Because these other ministers hold different views on issues such as baptism, holy communion, or women in leadership. But this kind of fellowship, dear friends, is not a fellowship based on love. At best, it's what a friend of mine many years ago um, used to call friendly non-cooperation. It's friendly non-cooperation. It's fellowship in name only. But what about you and me? Has your love failed at times? Mine has. I see some people coming my way after the service on a Sunday morning and uh, I quickly take a U-turn. I know they would appreciate a conversation. I know they could really do with a listening ear and with some encouragement, but I feel tired. 
The last thing I need is talking to someone, and so I quickly, in a moment, decide to avoid them. I'm just too selfish. I don't care enough. I don't help enough. And often I'm very slow to forgive those who have hurt me. Well, that's not right, says the Apostle John. That's not right. That's not what the love of God is about. If you claim to love God, how can you not love your fellow believers? No, says John, that's not right. And you know why? You know why? Because God is love. God is love. Where does, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love, he says. God is love, says John, not love is God. Let me say that again. God is love, he says, not love is God. Love doesn't define God. It is God who defines love. You see, most people think of love as a feeling. Love is what makes someone feel good. Love is what makes someone happy. Love is what gives you satisfaction. And if necessary, you can sacrifice your moral principles and the rights of others to get that kind of love. But friends, that isn't real love. It's the exact opposite. It's selfishness. Real love is defined by God. It is defined by his whole being. God is love. Real love is like God who is holy, just, and perfect. Real love is like God who is good, merciful, gracious, and patient. Real love is like God who cares for others, who serves others, who gives himself to others. This is the kind of love we should have, says John. This is the kind of love we should practice as Christians. This is the kind of love John has in mind when he writes in verse 7, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Love comes from God because God is love. Love is at the very heart of God's being. But how can we see God's love? Have you ever asked yourself that question? How can I see God's love? Where do we find proof of God's love? Well, John mentions three proofs of love, of the love of God here in this short passage. So let's have a quick look at these three proofs. First, God's love can be seen in the sending of Jesus. Please have a look at verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. John tells us that God has shown his love to us. Friends, we wouldn't know anything about God's love if God hadn't shown it to us. We wouldn't know anything about God's love if God hadn't decided to reveal it to us. But because God is love, he has communicated his love to us, not only in words, but also in deeds. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him, says John. God showed his love by sending Jesus into the world. 
God the Father demonstrated his love by sending his one and only Son into a hostile environment, into a harsh and rebellious place, a place of full of corrupt and bankrupt people. God the Father sent Jesus, and Jesus obeyed. Jesus left heaven. He left the company of his heavenly Father. He gave up his divine privileges. He lay aside his heavenly glory, his heavenly riches, and his heavenly power. He left the splendor of heaven to become one of us. He made himself nothing, as Paul puts it in his letter to the Philippians. He made himself nothing. He emptied himself. Jesus humbled himself, was born a human being, and took on the very nature of a servant. What a sacrifice. What an amazing sacrifice that was. Sometimes I think we, we forget that what Jesus left behind what he gave up for us when he came down to us. You see, Jesus had been there before the beginning of the world. He had existed with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit from eternity. He played a central role in creation. At the beginning, in the first chapter of his gospel, John writes, he was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, Nothing was made that has been made. Nothing. Jesus was present with the Father and the Spirit when a terrible flood consumed the world. He witnessed the unfolding history of human beings as they fought and killed each other, just like today. He witnessed how God's chosen people faithfully worshipped him, but he also witnessed when they turned their backs on him, doing all kinds of things that were utterly, utterly evil in his sight. Jesus witnessed all that, and he knew that the day would come. The day would come when he would exchange a peaceful heaven for a sinful world. Friends, if you want to see the love of God, you need to look at the coming of Jesus. The incarnation of Jesus reveals the vastness of God's love for the fallen, broken world. It was God's great love for us that compelled his plan of salvation. Love drove Jesus from the glories of heaven to earth. Love drove Jesus to become fully human and to live as a Jewish man in Judea, an insignificant backwater of the Roman Empire. And it was love that drove him to the cross where he made the biggest of all sacrifices. Now that brings us to our second point, our second proof. The ultimate place where God's love can be seen, brothers and sisters, is the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is the ultimate proof that God loves us. It's the ultimate proof of God's love for us. The Apostle John writes in verse 10, This is love, not that we loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God sent his son into the world to die for us, to die for our sins. God sent his son into this world to die for our rebellion against God, for keeping him out of our lives, to keeping him at a distance. God sent Jesus and sacrificed what was dearest for him, to him, for our sake. You see, God is a holy God, and I think sometimes we, we forget about that. God is a holy God, a holy God who hates, yes, hates sin. He hates it when people ignore him, when they worship their own gods. For some people, money is their God. For others, it's their jobs, their career, their holidays, their cars, their gardens, their families, you name it. Sin, you see, is not necessarily that dirty, filthy stuff that people often uh, think of when they hear the word sin. No, even good and beautiful things can be sinful when we make them the center of our lives. And this is what God hates. That's a strong word, but that's the word the Bible uses. This is what God hates. He hates it when other things or people take his place. He hates it because he created us to live in fellowship with him. Because God is a just God, he cannot overlook, he cannot condone or excuse sin as if it never happened. Sin needs to be dealt with, it needs to be punished, and the punishment for sin is death. That's what we all deserve as sinners, death. But, this is the big but in the New Testament. But, because of God's great love for us, he sent Jesus to take upon himself the punishment, or as John puts it here, he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God sent his son to pay the price that we owed for our rebellion against him. God sent his son so that we could be reconciled with him again and live in fellowship with him. That's how much God loves us. Having said that, there was no give and take involved in Jesus' sending here. John says, this is love, not that not that we loved God, but that he loved us. The sending of Jesus into the world wasn't prompted by our love for him. It was prompted by his love for us. God didn't meet us human beings halfway because we had shown some desire to be right with him. No, the initiative was completely, totally his own. He decided to show his love to those who didn't love him and who didn't want to love him. God decided to show his love to a world of lost rebels. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus gave his life for you and for me. He did it out of his great love for us. 
What the Apostle Paul is saying here is the same thing that he said in that well-known verse from his gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. But hang on a second. God gave his Son. He sent him as an atoning sacrifice. What kind of God is that who sacrifices his son? These are questions that we can hear sometimes. Twenty years ago, a well-known British preacher even called the doctrine of the atoning death of Jesus cosmic child abuse. Well, what critics like this British preacher overlook is that Jesus wasn't a victim of his father's actions. Yes, God sent his son to die on the cross, but you see, he didn't force him. He didn't force him. God's salvation is the work of the triune God. The Father planned our salvation, Jesus purchased our salvation, and the Holy Spirit preserves our salvation. Jesus didn't play a passive role in God's salvation plan. This is what Jesus said about his death on the cross. These are Jesus' words. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Jesus gave his life freely of his own will. His death was neither a tragedy nor a case of parental abuse. Jesus had the authority and the ability to defeat all his enemies, but he chose to give his life for them instead. He died so that those who believe in him can have life. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that it was easy for Jesus to die on the cross. Of course not. On the cross, he was very much on his own, bearing the sins of the whole world. I think we can't understand the depths of that suffering. But you see, Jesus did it anyway. He did it out of love for a broken human race. He did it so that people like you and me might live the lives that God wants us to live. And that brings us to our third point, the third proof for God's love. God's love can be seen in the life of the Church of Christ. It can be seen in the way Christians love one another. John writes this, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God is love. As Christians, we are his ben the beneficiaries of his love. We are the beneficiaries of his greatest act of love. 
He loved us so much that his son became a human being and died for us on the cross. He loved us who were hopelessly separated from him. He loved us so much that he offered Jesus to win us back. Dear brothers and sisters, how should we respond to such an act of love? How should we respond to such a love? Well, our normal response should be to love him and to love one another. If we are the children of God, we will want to be more like our Heavenly Father. If we are the children of a loving God, we want to share his love with each other. If the church is the body of Christ here on earth, then she must reflect the character and the love of Jesus. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another, says John. Tell me, where have you seen God's love here at St. Thomas's in recent days and weeks? Where have you experienced acts of God's love here in this congregation? Just take a moment to think about it. Well, shall we put a list together? I'm sure we would, that would be quite a long list. And we don't have the time for that this morning. But let me share with you some things that have come to my mind when I thought about it. Acts of God's love here at St. Thomas's. Spending many hours preparing meals for us during the church weekend at home. That was God's love in action, wasn't it? God's love in action calling fellow believers, sending them WhatsApp messages during the week to check up on them. That is God's love in action. Giving people lifts after church, listening to one another, comforting one another, praying for one another, carrying each other's burdens. These are visible acts of God's love. The community, the church is a community of love, friends. The church is a community that demonstrates God's love to a broken world. Or as the Apostle John puts it here, no one has ever seen God. No one. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Friends, never underestimate the witness of a loving church the witness of a loving church. Jesus is no longer with us physically, but if people want to see him, they will be able to meet him in a church that loves him. As Christians, we love one another because God has loved us first. And that will not go unnoticed. It will not go unnoticed. The love of God for rebels like us is more credible where people see it reflected in the lives of God's children. Love is more than a warm feeling. Love itself is action. 
It shows itself in action. God's love becomes visible when we go the extra mile. When we give sacrificially without expecting anything in return. When we absorb hurt from others without complaining. When we don't fight back but seek peace. When we're ready to forgive quickly. In his gospel, John recorded the following words Jesus spoke to his disciples. A new command I give you, love one another. As I loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Yes, we have to share the good news with people for them to come to a saving faith in Jesus. Faith comes by hearing the message, writes the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans. And that's true. People need to hear the message about Jesus. Communicating the gospel verbally is crucial. There is no way that people can come to faith in Jesus without having heard the gospel first. But you see, a loving church can pave the way for them. Let me tell you a short story. George Kemple Morgan was a well-known British preacher and evangelist who lived uh, from 1863 to 1945. Together with his wife Nancy, he had five sons, and all of whom became ministers of the gospel. All sons became preachers too. One day, a visitor came to their home, and he asked George um, Kemple Morgan and his sons a very direct and a very personal question. He said, which of you six is the best preacher? Well, their united answer was mother. <laughs> Nancy Kemple Morgan had never stood in a pulpit on a Sunday morning and preached to a congregation. She wasn't a preacher like her husband and like her sons, but her life was a constant sermon on the love of God. In that respect, she was the best preacher in her family. Friends, the life of Christians who abide in God's love is a powerful witness for God in a world, a world full of confusion, a world full of corruption, a world full of conflict. It's a powerful witness in a world where people lack hope and where they lack orientation. It's a powerful witness in a world that is full of suffering and pain. People can't see God, but they can see how his love moves the children of God to help, to share, to make sacrifices for one another. Having said that, the witness of an unloving church usually has the exact opposite. Let's be clear about that. When people encounter an unloving church, all they can see is hypocrisy. What John writes in verses 13 to 21 about a loving church gives us also an idea of what an unloving church in 21st century Scotland may look like. A loving church, says John, is a church full of believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit, says John in verse 13. 
But you see, an unloving church is a church without the Holy Spirit. Members of an unloving church are not driven by God's Spirit, but by the Spirit of this world. It's a church dominated by competition, by jealousy and spiritual arrogance. It's a church in which ministers are obsessed with the idea of becoming the next bishop or the next moderator. It's a church full of people who care first and foremost about themselves. It's a church full of people who see no need for repentance and who don't forgive those who have wronged them. A loving church acknowledges Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior of the world, says John, verses 14 and 15. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. Well, an unloving church doesn't believe and proclaim Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And even if they do, it will only be lip service. For an unloving church, Jesus is just a historical figure. A good man and teacher who left us with some basic rules on how to live a decent life. A loving church doesn't look ahead to Judgment Day with fear, says John. No, they do it with joy. We will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. An unloving church, brothers and sisters, doesn't have that assurance. And so it denies the reality of God's judgment. An unloving church isn't bothered at all that without Jesus, people will be separated from God for eternity. At the end of the day, an unloving church is a lying church, says John. It's a church without God. Verse 20. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. You see, the witness of an unloving church is more than just a bad witness. It's a destructive witness. An unloving church will always drive people away from God, often in a very subtle way, but ultimately it will drive people away from God. Not so a loving church. The witness of a loving church will always point people to a loving God who sent his one and only son to die for them on a cross. Friends, three weeks ago, in one of our sessions during our church weekend at home, we talked about the present and future needs of St. Thomas's. I'm sure you can remember that. Alistair was staying, standing here where I stay now, and we were talking about that. We don't know what the Apostle John would have shared with us if he had been there. But looking at this letter... And at this passage, perhaps he would have said something like this. Well, my dear people here at St. Thomas's Church in Kostorfen, Edinburgh, all you need is love, but not in the sense of that Beatles song. All you need is God's love. So keep growing in his love. 
Keep growing in your, in your love for one another. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. You are on the right path, but there's always room for growth. So love one another, keep preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus, the good news of God who became a human being to die on the cross so that we could live new lives with him. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.